Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Robert Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If we haven't yet met, I am so glad that you guys have come on out to join us for a continuation of our series called Training Wheels. And uh, it's in this series that we're trying to encourage people, all of you, to get on the bike of faith as our metaphor goes and to lose the training wheels as quickly as possible and try to get past what it is and uh, how we act and how we live and how we think in the early days of our Christian journey and start to press into maturity in Christ, which of course we're saying means you got to drop the training wheels. Now, if you're newer to the faith, then the training wheels are right for you. It's perfect. And so the things that we're talking about might seem a little bit uh, beyond uh, the uh, things that you would normally think about in your Christian experience. But for others who have been along in the the faith for some time, what we're going to be talking about today, I think, will be right up your alley. In fact, for many of us, we're really trying to encourage us to figure out how do you now get back up after having taken a really good spill. That's kind of going to be the focus that uh, we have here this morning. So what? Uh, let me ask you guys a question. What is the hardest part of learning to ride a bicycle? What's the hardest part? What is it? What would you say it is? Balance? No. What would it? The hardest what? Break. See, yeah, the pavement is the hardest part of learning to ride a bicycle. And, uh, you know, it could be a brutal part of the experience for sure. And uh, when you think about how it is that those challenges, especially when you're a little kid, how many times have you seen a kid's riding a bike, he goes down and he's like, that's it. Walks away from it like, you know, that's it, I'm done. He's like, well... No, no, that's, that's just the beginning of the falls. <laughs> There's going to be lots more where, where that, that came from. Challenges in life are often very similar. Challenges can derail our Christian growth. The hardships that we face can derail us. You, know, you think about how it is. You're in, going through your life, you know, and you, let's say that for whatever reason, you're in a bit of a pressure cooker kind of environment. And you're trying to do what's right. But because of all of the pressure, you lose your cool. You snap. You blow your Christian witness. And all of a sudden, you're like, what just happened? You know, it's all this pressure was building up, and I couldn't take it. Or let's say it's money pressures for you. You got all sorts of money pressures. You're pressing in hard. You're getting nervous about the future. You're not really sure what you're going to do next. So, you know, you decide, I'm going to have to close this sale no matter what, even if it means a little less integrity on my part, even if it means I got to misrepresent my product just a little bit or my service just a little bit because I got I to close this deal. I got to make my quota. I got to get my bonus. I got I to gotta, I gotta do it. 
See, the pressure caused me is the way we like to think about this. We have tight schedules. Who doesn't? We're running from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. We never seem, seem to have enough time to do anything. So you know what? Today I'm just going to skip out. I'm not going to worry about reading or praying. I'm not going to look at my Bible. I'm not going to, you know, I can't get involved in a growth group because, of course, you know, I'm just so busy with everything else. Even though I know that getting in a growth group is going to help me, help me spiritually, but, it, you know, I just can't because, so we make decisions to pull back from the things that nourish our souls because, well, life is just pressing in. My schedule is just too difficult. You know, maybe you're in church one day and I say, hey guys, you know, you should go out and share your faith, tell your story, let people know, you know, what Christ has done for you and, you know, go out there and share your story. And so you do and it's going great. You're at work and you had an opportunity and so you're sharing your story. And then the next day, because of whatever circumstances or situations present himself, you flip out. You start yelling at people and cursing and all the people you've been sharing with. You know, you've been there. This has happened. You're like, what just, you know, something went wrong. This isn't what the plan was. And we like to say that these things just happen to us. And when they happen to us, it can be incredibly frustrating and really set us back. Because it feels like you're riding around, you blew a tire, or you bent a rim. You know, you're heading up that hill and all of a sudden it's just, you know, the bike's malfunctioning and you're not able to keep in the race. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Trying to figure out what we do when the hills get too steep or when the bike seems to malfunction, when something seems to go wrong, the hardships press in on us, what do we do? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. If you could open up in a Bible to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. There are Bibles put in the seats around you guys. So if you can't find one next to you, there's probably one in a seat near you. Or you can just kind of look over the person's shoulder in front of you, which is always fun to watch. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And we're going to be looking at how it is that we can endure hardship when we reflect on what the writer says is the joy set before us. So that's kind of the idea we're going to look at here first. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So he takes this idea, he starts off with this cloud of witnesses. And when you look at that at first, you know, I remember growing up, people would be like, oh, that cloud of witnesses, you know, it must be the angels who are watching you. And I was like, well, that's, that's creepy. You know, like, what a horrible feeling. He's like, no, no, it's all the people that have died before you, like your aunts and uncles and grandparents and all the generations of Kelly before you. They're up, they're the great cloud of witness, and they're somehow peering through the dimensional space between heaven and earth, and they're watching you. I'm like, well, that's not a good feeling either. Like, you know, this, is, this is just a weird kind of way of thinking about what this cloud of witnesses is. Who's witnessing me? Who's watching me in this way? But when he starts off here, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded. So therefore usually points back to the immediate context, which was Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews 11 is called, it's the famous, uh, the famous faith chapter. And of course, in that, he lists all of these great saints of old. He just goes through this long litany of all the Old Testament 
prophets and priests and, and judges and warriors and kings. And he goes through this great big list and he explains how all of them persevered in the face of incredible challenges and maintained faith in God. I think that's what he's talking about. He's not even so much saying that they're up in heaven looking down on us. I don't know if people in heaven can look down on us and see anything that's going on. I don't know how any of that stuff works. But I'm not sure he's talking about them witnessing us at all. I think he's saying they're the cloud of witnesses, meaning they're the witness to us. We're actually to be looking at their story and their example. We're supposed to be seeing their testimony, the witness, the word, it's this idea of even martyr. They're the ones who, who actually made the sacrifices before us, therefore proving the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make, that you can endure incredible hardship, amazing suffering, and hold fast to your faith. Because that's exactly what they all did. And then he says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And you get the picture here. This is race language. Like if you were in a race, you were running a race, that's kind of what he's talking about. And we could talk about it as a bike race. The idea is you get rid of everything that will, cause to, will give you a disadvantage in the race. Get rid of it. You know, there's like a multi-million dollar industry to shave ounces off of a racing bike. If, it's a high, if you're at a, at, a, at a high level of competition, if you're serious about racing, then you'll pay thousands more for a particular type of frame because it might be a few ounces lighter. And you'll upgrade your tires for hundreds and hundreds of dollars in order to, to shave off just a little bit of extra dead weight. And that's really the imagery that he's talking about. You would never jump into a, you know, an important race you know, like you guys, people were training for the marathon. We had a whole lot of people do the World Vision Marathon for clean water. It was an amazing thing. You're not going to throw a 50-pound sack on your back for kicks. That's not what you're going to do. You're going to make sure that you are ready to go, that in, in every possible way, there, nothing extraneous is, is left on, all the sin that entangles. You can get the imagery there. Whatever it is that's causing you to be tripped up, get rid of it. You don't want it for this race. And then he tells them to run with perseverance, to keep pushing, to hold on, to endure. And this is, this is great advice. In fact, I, I would imagine that if you decided that you'd come and talk to me about something, I've spoken to a lot of you in you know, we, meetings or phone calls or emails or in the office or whatever it is after church, half of the advice I usually give is some form of hang on. It's some form of endure. It's some form of run with perseverance. Because so much of life is going to end up coming down to grit, to holding on. And it's so easy to offer this kind of advice to people who are struggling. It really is. It's just, it flows so easy and natural because you do find it in the scriptures. So, you know, if I told you guys, you shouldn't yell at your kids. You're going to say, well, then tell them to stop acting up. No, you're going you're to say, if I say you're not supposed to yell at your kids, stop yelling at your kids, you're going to say, I know. Like, there's no one here who thinks that yelling at our kids is, is a good thing. You know, we know when we've lost our temper. We look at it and we go, yeah, you know, thanks, thanks for the helpful advice. You know, don't yell at your kids. I, I, I already know that. If I tell you, no, you're supposed to stop, you know, stealing from work or cheating on your taxes, you would say, I know, I know. If I said you should be respectful to your wife, you would say, I know. 
If I told you that you are supposed to work hard for your boss, even though your boss is a clown, you're going to say, I know. If I tell you you should stop being a racist, you're going to say, I know. If I say, stop being greedy, you're going to say, I know. If I say, don't kick the dog, you're going to say, I know. We won't talk about the cat. <laughs> but if I said to you, you should respect the president, you're going to say, <laughs> you're going to say, now, gonna, no, now you're meddling. See, if, if I say any list of these, these things, and you just you bring your situation, your struggle, it's easy advice. You're going to end up saying to me, rightly so, I know I need to do these things. How? How? Isn't that the real question here? I already know much of this stuff. I could read the scriptures. I could open up the Bible. And it's going to tell me, you know, stop being a jerk. And you're going to be like, all right, I've got to stop being a jerk. How? I already know I'm not supposed to be a jerk. How? And he gives us a surprising answer in verse 2. He says, fix our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. He calls him the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. So somehow, staring at Jesus is the answer to how. Somehow, staring at Jesus is the answer. Now, of course, this can't mean simply staring at a picture of Jesus. I heard about a grandmother who put a picture of what she thought, who she thought was Jesus up on her mantle. Isn't that awesome? Nice. I want to know not only how, not, it's funny that she thought that was Jesus. She's got the little cross and the keep calm, Jesus loves you thing. I want to know how she thought she got a photo of Jesus. That's, what, that's the real thing. But, you know, or maybe, maybe it's this picture. Maybe some of you grew up with the picture where Jesus is always staring at you. Kind of like the creepy look. Like, you know, if I'm here, he's still staring. If I'm here, he's still staring. So what are you going to do, a staring match with Jesus? You're going to, like, set it up in your little prayer closet and, like, just gaze at Jesus. And somehow, you know, that's going to, you know, make all of these things in your life get better. Of course, it can't mean anything like this. So what does it mean? to fix our eyes, to, to fix our gaze on Jesus. It seems as if somehow Jesus has to capture our full horizon such that no matter where we look and no matter what we see, no matter what our experiences are, we see Jesus in it. We fix our eyes on him so that it's through the Jesus lens that we see and experience everything else. You know, we think that our problems and our circumstances are rolling out of, you know, the world at us in this uncontrollable way, and all we see are the problems. But what if that's not what we're supposed to see? What if we're supposed to see the Jesus in that moment? You know, we have a big conflict at work. What if we're supposed to look for Jesus in that moment? What if we're supposed to be fixing our eyes such that no matter where it is we look, we see Jesus? You remember the story when uh, Jesus is walking on the water. Some of you will remember this story from Sunday school. And the, the, the boat is being buffeted over here with the apostles, on the, you know, the, the disciples that are on it. And Peter jumps out. He's going to go be with Jesus on the water, which is a pretty amazing moment. All the other guys are like, yeah, I think I'll stay in the boat and watch how this plays out. And uh, you know, Peter jumps out, as Peter was prone to do, and the text says that it's as soon as he, he was doing great, he was walking on the water with Jesus, and then as soon as he started to look at the waves, he started to sink. It's, I think this is the idea here. 
as long as you're, under, you're, you're, you're captured, your gaze is captured by Christ and him alone, this is what it means to fix our eyes, to see him in it all. He also is called the pioneer and the perfecter. As a pioneer, he has already blazed the trail. He's already run this race and won. So he's already cleared the trail. He's already cleared the path. He's already marked it with his own blood. And as the pioneer, he's already ahead saying, this can be done. You can do it. I made sure you can do it. I've already cleared the path for you. Now it's yours to walk it. Then it says he's the perfect, excuse me, the perfecter, which is neat too because in this way, we're coming along, we're, we're walking that path, we're on that journey, but we start to struggle and we feel like we're not ready for it, we're not capable, we're broken down, we're, we're screwed up over here, whatever it might be, and you're feeling inadequate for the race that's ahead of you. And Jesus is saying, I'm the perfecter of your faith as well. I've already cut the path, but I didn't just run up ahead and leave you to fend for yourself. I'm helping perfect your faith in these moments so that you can endure and make it to the finish line. And how come he was able to do this? Verse 2 tells us, for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. So what was the joy that was set before him? What was it that Jesus was gazing upon in the future? What was it that he had fixed his eyes upon that allowed him to endure the cross? It seems as if he was looking forward to the city that was not built by human hands. He was looking forward to the heavenly city. We get a hint of this in verse 22. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He says the city of the living God. This is the idea of the, the perfect community. Now he and us will be unified in community, in a, in a social, emotional network, this community of the living. This is a, a picture of the whole of the church for all of history. From every tongue and tribe and nation and every time period in history knit together in one great family. He sees the angels in the heavenly, this heavenly choir as if to say this will be a place filled with the overflow of worship. It's going to be a place where we're all together singing God's praises for all of the, his wonder and his majesty and, and all that he has done in us and through us. He, and he points to the blood. The blood of Jesus that was actually going to open up the path back to God that was going to, to tear the veil of the temple to prevent, uh, you know, this uh, constant separation from our creator. The wall that we kept butting up against. He's saying, no, the blood it was there allowing us access back to God so that we could be reunited again. You see, he's looking forward to the community of the saints. He's looking forward to the worship He's looking forward to the joy. He saw a future that to him was certain, which means he was able to endure whatever this world would throw at him. Whatever. He was able to push through it because he had a heavenly, eternal perspective. 
So can we just talk politics for a moment? Because you have to kind of just, just for a moment, we'll talk politics. I know I don't talk politics much, but here we go. All right, now some of you this week are like, you're in depression because you feel like, oh my goodness, this is a terrible thing. This, I can't believe this happened and your candidate didn't win. Others of you are feeling like, I'm really, really glad that, that you know, she didn't win. I'm not really happy with who did win, but I'm really glad she didn't win. That was how, and others of you are like, no, no, I really wanted him to win. People are all over the place, right? That, that's pretty normal. The world's screwed up. We're all broken. It's all screwed up. We, it's hard to know any of this anymore, right? I mean, we could all pretty much agree how difficult this whole cycle has been. But what gets me is how, and this would have played out no matter who ended up winning, by the way, the panic coming, not just, it's fun to watch it from everyone in the world. That's fun to watch, all of the, like, uh, ah! but what, the part that gets me is the panic in Christian circles. As if somehow the next four years or eight years or even 50 years has now spiraled out of God's control. Really? I mean, is that really what we think has happened here? I mean, do we, are we really, I mean, is that, if that's the case, yeah, we're in trouble. You should be panicked. But you see, we're setting our eyes on the earthly city. We're not setting our eyes on the heavenly city. We're not, we're forgetting we're not able to look past and say, wait a second, this is, the, this is what we would expect in a broken world. This is exactly how we would have imagined these things would have played out. But let's set our eyes much further, not at 50 years, and not at 200 years, but let's set our eyes on the eternal and see how that impacts whether or not we have to run around fearful. I can guarantee you this. The Christians in the first century faced with much more difficult circumstances and situations than anything that we're going to face in the next four, eight, or probably even 50 years. Much more difficult to the point where the writer of Hebrews was saying, listen, you know, you guys haven't even, you know, started shedding your blood yet. Unlike, he doesn't say this, but unlike so many other Christians who were used for sport in the first centuries. Right, that's it for politics. All right, there we go. So anyway, the point here is this fixed gaze on Jesus is essential, but it becomes even more important when we realize that God is responsible for some of the pain. This becomes far more challenging. In fact, the need to gaze upon Jesus becomes doubly true, doubly important when it's God bringing the hardships. And God will often bring hardships to grow us up. You know, I think for me, when, when I'm dealing with a, a tough situation, for me, let's say, you know, most of you are in sports and you do different hobbies and stuff like that, and I know some of you, it frustrates you most, not so much when you kind of, you know, fail and you screw something up or you just can't make what your goal was. It's when your equipment fails that you really get riled up because that's what you should have been trusting in. Like this guy, this guy had trained really hard. No doubt he was in his peak physical prime. He's doing awesome. This looks really fun. Ow! Busted tire, blown out. He's down, he's out. You can imagine a guy like this getting up from that thinking, are you kidding me? The tire? That's what has to take me out of the race? That's what has to blow out the tire? So, you know, I, um, I, uh, I bow hunt. That's just one of my hobbies. And so what, what this looks like, some of you don't, you know, you, you kind of, it's a different thing for you. I get it because we're not rednecks. Most of us 
here. But uh, so you, you wonder kind of what that looks like. Here's pretty much what it means. It means I wake up brutally early from like, you know, any day I go out from like September through January. I travel a couple of hours, an hour or two hours. I go out in the bitter cold, in the wind, often in the snow, even in the rain. I climb into the dark, I, go, I, I hike through the dark woods, I climb into a tree up at like 20 feet, I strap myself to a branch so that I can promptly fall asleep <laughs> in the freezing cold. That's largely what hunting looks like to me. But so now imagine you've invested all of this time and energy, right? And every once in a while something will happen where I'll be in a tree and I'll realize my equipment's broken. Like my bow, you know, the string popped off. And it shouldn't have. I didn't do it. I don't know what happened to it, but something happened. Or, you know, my little, my little, I have a pole that I use for my wrist. And the little thing busted off, and it's something you can't fix in the tree. You're hours in, and now you're done. Now, when you're thinking about this in faith, I think this is the experience that many of us have sometimes. We're supposed to be able to trust the bike. We're supposed to know that it's going to deliver on its promises. All, it's, all that matters is how I perform now. But what happens when, when it fails to perform? What happens when it's your equipment that seems to be letting you down? I think this is when we can often get frustrated and we can often see God in that moment. Because it sounds as if I, at, in this moment in my spiritual journey, I really needed God to come through and he didn't. I really needed God to show up and he didn't. I really expected him. This is what I needed him to do in this moment. And for whatever reason, he has failed me. My equipment blew out on me. Now what am I supposed to do? And the writer of Hebrews starts to bring us into this conversation in verse 5. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I mean, the writer of Hebrews, he goes so far as to say, the discipline, the hardship you're facing is the proof of God's love. See, we, we often look at the hardship as evidence that God doesn't love us, <laughs> that, he, that he doesn't care, that he doesn't, he's not involved, that he's not, he's not you know, looking at my situation anymore. And if he is looking at it, he doesn't care about me anymore because if he cared about me, obviously I wouldn't be going through this. It's as if the writer of Hebrews, you know, you could imagine an awkward conversation with him when you, you know, you, you kind of, he asks you about how you're doing in your Christian life and you're like, oh, it's been great. I've had like three years. There's been no problems. Everything's fantastic. And he'd be like, oh no. Oh no, that's a problem. I'm like, what do you mean that's a problem? Everything's going great. He's like, no, no, it clearly means you're not his son. It clearly means you're not his daughter. It clearly means you're not a child of God because if you were a child of God, 
there would be hardships in your life. We don't think about things like this. This seems to be completely counterintuitive to even the American way of life. We're supposed, it's the pursuit of happiness, <laughs> not hardship. The writer here is saying, you guys, you don't understand. When you're being disciplined, when you're experiencing hardship, that's a good thing. It means God is doing his work. It means he's getting you ready. It means he's preparing you. It means he's purging, purifying the soul. But I think it's hard for us to keep your gaze on Christ when we recognize it's him bringing the pain. How do you now gaze upon him? How do you keep that look up? How do you keep that connection when, in fact, he's bringing the pain? You expect Jesus to deliver, and he doesn't. And that gets very hard. You're thirsting for the presence of God. You're wanting more of the spirit in your life. You want to feel that spiritual connection and power, and it doesn't come. You've tried everything you can do. You've done your reading. You've done your praying. The whole thing seems broken, and he's let you down. Or let's say you're in chronic pain. The doctor says to you, there's nothing else we can do. That's it. There's nothing else we can do. Your only recourse is to pray. Now you ask God. You're like, God, it's obviously it's only in your hands now. You're the only one that can do anything about it. Would you please heal me? And he doesn't. Who else can? There is no other hope. It seems like it's broken. You're looking for that relationship that you desperately want restored. It fell apart for who knows why. It's been years in the making, whatever it is. But you know that God could turn it around. You know that he could change a person's heart. He know, you know he could change your behavior. You know that he could put this whole thing back together. And it'll be an amazing testimony to the power of God. And you're just trusting in it. You're holding fast to it. You're just, God, I know you're going to do this for me. And it never happens. Something's broken. It's not right. We look at the life of Jesus and we realize he did this exact thing. That's what he experienced. You know, he had his own valley of the shadow of death. He was in his own dark garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was there. And he was asking God to let the cup of the cross pass from him, the cup of the suffering that he was about to endure which he had already told his disciples he was there for. That's why he came, to die on the cross so that we could come back to God. And now he's there in the garden saying, if there is another way, if there's another way, can we please do that? And he asks, and he asks again, and he asks again, and he gets the same answer. No, there is no other way. This is the way it has to be. To which he, of course, said, your will be done. And he did it. He kept his gaze fixed upon the Father. He kept the, the picture of the kingdom that was to come. The heavenly city that would descend from heaven upon earth and change everything. Wipe out all of this garbage. Start it fresh and new with the people of God in communion with him and singing his praises with every tear wiped away.
with the swords beaten into plowshares. He saw that picture in the great distant future. He fixed his gaze upon the Father. When he says he's the pioneer, when he blazed the trail, he did. He did the very thing he's asking us to do. In the moments of greatest hardship, in the moments of greatest difficulty, to fix our eyes upon him. Even when it seems like he has not held up his end of the bargain. Even when we're experiencing the pressure, he's saying, trust. Trust in him. Now, when we talk about the discipline of God, we have to recognize it comes from two different areas. It could be our own sin issues. And some of you today are experiencing this discipline of God. You feel the heavy hand of God upon your life right now because you're in sin. Because you're rebelling against him, you're doing things you shouldn't be doing, you're in relationships you shouldn't be into, you know, you're, you're pursuing addictions that you shouldn't be pursuing, you're entertaining yourself in ways you shouldn't be entertaining, and you're saying, I feel the pressure of God in my life. He is disciplining me. Then stop resisting him. That's what the discipline is for. It's so you'll yield. It's so you'll develop the humility to yield yourself to his better way, to have your life purified and made holy here. But for others, it's not about that. I mean, I guess for all of us, in some way, it's always about that. It's certainly always part of, of our, our journey. But there's another type of discipline that we have to recognize here. You're, when you're working really hard at some goal, you're working out, you're going to the gym, those, you know, you're doing the, you know, the big run for World Vision, you're disciplining yourself, meaning you're, you're training for it. And if you had a coach that was pushing you every day saying, we're going to train you for this, we're going to train you for this, we're going to train you for this. It's not that he's disciplining you simply because you screwed something up. He's training you for a better future. He's training you to get you ready for a different goal. Something you can't achieve right now. Something you're incapable of without the training. That's the language that's laced throughout this whole chapter. God is saying, you're being disciplined, you're being trained now, so that God will do even more with you later. He's transforming your life and your soul in relation to God now through all of these hardships, through all of these struggles. It's a whole other way of looking at what God is doing. This is the way we could see Jesus in every one of these circumstances and trials, to fix our eyes upon him. I'm going to, be asking, I'm going to ask the band to come up. And they're going to be leading us in a couple more songs as we get ready to come to the Lord's table here. And one of the songs that, uh, the first song that they're going to be uh, introducing us to, it's a new song. It's one of my absolute uh, new favorite songs. And sh the, the author is wrestling with this exact idea. She's singing about what we've been talking about. How we've got to be able to start laying down our hopes, our dreams for our future and trusting in what God will have us do. She even goes so far as to talk about what happens and what we ought to do when God doesn't act in the ways that we expected him to, in fact, that we needed him to. Because from our perspective, it's about what we need him to do. And she's telling us time and again. So I'm going to ask that as we kind of sing this song, I'm going to ask that uh, you guys would make this your prayer and use it as a chance to examine your own hearts and see how it might, uh, where you might be in this journey. So would you stand as we worship a little more? <laughs>